This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Bob Woodward, not the journalist associated with Watergate, but the Bob Woodward, outdoor writer and journalist who is arguably the first to report on the international cross-country racing scene way, way back in the day. Our Bob Woodward goes by the name of Woody, and Woody has been living in Bend, Oregon since 1978. In fact, Woody lives a few blocks away from me here in Bend. Woody is a local's local who also helped define outdoor sports writing. Before the internet, before things like mountain biking, skiing, and climbing were branded as lifestyles, Woody was covering adventure sport and passing on his observations to readers. Yes, Woody also covered Nordic sport. From Oslo to races here in North America, Woody reported on the gear, the lycra, and the personalities. We met up with Woody on December 1st of last year to discuss his writing career and what he learned along the way covering the Nordic world. Levels here a little bit. So can I just get you to count to 10, Woody? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Here we are in Bend, Oregon. 40-year resident of Bend. And uh, how old are you, Bob? I'm 78. Are you really? Yeah. The great Bob is known, so I only live a few blocks down the street from Bob, and we had a pretty epic winter here last year. And Bob like keeps the most pristine sidewalks. I mean, it was like dump after dump last year. And uh, there's a tradition here: we try to keep the best sidewalk in Bend. Well, you got it. Believe me, I'm like very. <laughs> I'm always like, oh my gosh, like people are going to slip and kill themselves. Okay, enough with sidewalks, and on to the formal interview. For people who really focused in and listened to the John Caldwell podcast, I think yeah. over the summer, he mentioned your name and it was really, he's like, oh, well, you must know Woody. And I was like, oh yeah, he lives down the street, but I don't think we've actually met. <laughs> so can you give a little bit of some background to folks about, you know, what you did for decades professionally and how it involved uh, skiing? Well, I started out my writing career, I was in retail. But I went from there to a trip to Norway uh, for selling the most skis of any dealer in the United States. I was Sierra Designs in Berkeley, of all places, California. On the way back on the SAS flight, a guy next to me said, you know, you're a great storyteller. There's a new magazine owned by Runner's World, which was very popular at the time, called Nordic World, and you ought to send him some ideas. I sent him two articles. The editor called me and said, we love them. You want to come to work for us? I said, I can't do that right now. But he said, well, keep feeding the stories. And that's how it started. So I was first writing about touring and, you know, waxing and all that esoterica. But eventually it got into competition. And uh, I went in a 42K race in Oslo that year. And just by chance, I got in the race. A A Danish skier dropped out. They put me in his place. And I had fun. I was probably dead last, but I... Opened my eyes to racing, watching the the World Cup type racers before that race, and then doing the sit race. So I got interested. And is that that was when you were just over there on that business trip? You yes, nineteen seventy four. Yeah. Okay, and was that up at at least where in the vicinity of kind of the home and colon venue? It was currently? all home and colon. The race started out way out of town and came in, and it, it was one of the most greatest experiences of my life. Came in, I didn't think I could ski 42 kilometers, A. B, came into the stadium, you could ski under the jump, and then down into the field where they had the finish line for the big guys, 
the big women and big men of skiing, and it was exhilarating. So I got hooked. You know, half of Oslo shows up for probably any old race back in the day, and now it probably takes some more high-profile athletes, but I'm assuming there were like tons of people. And- tons of people. It was the first ever Holmacol ski march. It was the first one, and I think they're up to their, I don't know, 74 on, they're still going, although it's 10,000 people now instead of, I think when I raced it, a couple thousand. So, you know, one thing I'm, and I'm looking around your office here, you're obviously very digitally connected, right? There's not like you're, there's no typewriter, there's no nothing anachronistic no. here about what you're doing. From your perception and seeing like everything so real time now, each athlete is essentially their own media enterprise if they really want to do that and take the time to do it. I mean, they, you know, there's Facebook, oh, yeah, Instagram, all sorts of things, whatever from tweets to Facebook to whatever. What do you see as maybe a downside of that and something that's a positive of the way things maybe were operating back 30 years ago? Well, I think the thing about 30 years ago, there was sort of a mystery about all the top end competitors particularly the Soviets, they were total mystery because they didn't let out much. So there was sort of this aura of, hmm, I wonder what this person's really like and in real life, and you didn't get that. Now, do you know, you, you know the, particularly like our U.S. women skiers, you know pretty much about them, what their family life is like, what their other interests are. But in those days, we had to get tough to ferret out, particularly the foreign athletes, because, you know, we didn't know much about them. We were just trying to learn as much as we could as we went along. Because that's, you know, I, so one of the challenges I face is not, I don't feel like I'm competing with social media because, you know, each individual ha- obviously has a right to be as out there as they want in terms of how they present themselves or how frequently they present themselves. But yeah, there's like the scoop, it's tough to find the scoop, right? Yeah. It'd be very difficult to find a scoop. Back in the day, the biggest scoop I had was. 1974, the World Championships. When I was in on that trip at, in Norway, the World Championships were going on in Falun, Sweden. And it was the first time that fiberglass skis came on. Every medal except one, and that was uh, Magna Mirmo, won a silver on a wood skis. The rest were won on, on uh, fiberglass. And we were at a dinner in Norway, and the head of the Norwegian Ski Federation said, when better skis are made and they're fiberglass, Norwegians will make them. Well, the Norwegians took a real hit because Fisher and Kniesel really took over the world. But that was a story I wrote when I got home that was accepted. Is Wood Dead was the title. And so that was fun following that. I got involved more in the technology, the skis, the ski making, the boots, the bindings, and the technical aspect as well as sort of trying to romance the sport. Right, so it's like back back then – one, you know, someone shows up with the latest technology at the start line, and there's the story. Rather, oh, yeah. Interesting. Because now, obviously, things are leaked like a year in advance. Here's here's the R&D, and here's what we're working on for, you know, next year's boot or next year's ski and, and what have oh, you. Oh, yeah. People made a big deal. I remember going to citizen races, and when I coached the University of California ski team, we'd go to meets. And that people would show up with new gear and everybody would huddle around and look at it and check it out. I mean, it's a big deal. And the big race in California those days was the Yosemite Holiday Race that Ned Gillette started. 
And, uh, boy, people would show up with the fanciest gear, kind of outdo each other. It was quite quite amusing, actually. What was, if you can recall, like when you would cover a World Cup or a World Championships or an Olympics or what have you, but what was the waxing situation like? It was totally amateur compared to today. Let me give you an example. In, in 1980 at Lake Placid, I stayed at a house that Carhu had rented. And Karu was still a big name in racing at the time. They had Sven Oki Lundbach from Sweden and some, some pretty darn good skiers. Well, they had waxed in the garage there, the ski team did. You know, in the house, there was all of several press members, myself, Karu people from Finland and Karu USA. But in the garage, guys were kind of like you and me at home, waxing up the skis for the next day. Compared today with the semi-trailers and the fancy schmancy, and the, it's, it was totally primitive do you follow the sport much at all anymore uh somewhat around olympic times not as much as i used to i around olympic time i get interested and uh there's i follow the uh, some of the athletes uh, alex harvey of canada i follow because his dad is a friend and a great guy and the u.s women i've been following because i think they're doing a terrific job so uh, the, but it's not like in the old days when i look forward to every issue of ski racing and would pour over the results and and no one could watch it. I mean, I hear stories all the time. I'm like, oh, yeah, I had this bootleg VHS tape of a race that someone sent from Norway. No one was able to actually watch. Well, the, the dig on cross-country racing at that time was you see people at a start, they go into the woods, and they come out a couple hours later. And there wasn't much film or video of anything except maybe the Vasa love, but they'd show the, the mass start and everybody would go, God, that looks crazy. You know, that was about it. You know, when did you first start covering kind of, you know, the national teams here in North America and realizing that, okay, there are some interesting kind of personalities at play and that, there were some folks that could make an impact on the world stage. Well, I think 1979 when we went to pre-Olympics and 80 went to Lake Placid. I think I always look back and think that 76 really called my attention, the Olympics there, because that was the when Bill did so well, Coke. But 80s, uh, by the time I got to 80, I was really interested in Coke's win or silver medal in, in the 30-kilometer and. I, I think I really got really interested first in 1976 when Bill Koch won the silver medal. And at that point, I was just marginally interested in racing, but that that win or that placing was so important. I called up a sports channel in San Francisco, KGO Sports, and they did the you know the 49ers and the Raiders. It was a talk show, and I got on there and started blabbing about Bill Koch. And then after I got off the other guy, I said, who is this nutcase? What is cross-country skiing? It's nothing. But for me, it was a huge deal. So by the time we got to Placid, we had high hopes. And I think almost Bill was premature in, in signaling that America had arrived. They were getting way better and were certainly improved, but they weren't ready for the big-time stage or the, the podium at that point. But it was a great, great, great showing for him, but it was just sort of not the precursor for a sudden arrival of the u.s team so i remember i think john i don't know if you listened to the interview i did, did you, it's the john caldwell one yeah okay so 
I remember John being like, you know, Cokie or someone was didn't like any negative press or something. Or, Bill didn't. Yeah. yeah. And what was the press like back then? Or was it still... And not to say it's any different now. You know, it's obviously cross-country skiing has its heyday once every four years, in particular if there are athletes who are like like this cycle where there are real metal contenders. What was it like dealing with a culture that hadn't, you know, domestically here, that hadn't necessarily even been in the media before except for the articles talking about, hey, you should go for, it's a fitness sport, and here's how you can get involved and go for a ski in the woods. It was difficult. I think there was they were didn't know much about media. The athletes didn't know much about it. The coaches didn't know much about it. They were accepting, uh, kind of hesitantly accepting. And then if you wrote something, though, and you expressed an opinion, then they got angry quickly. So they had not learned how to kind of manipulate or work with the press. And so it's, in the beginning, it was easy, but it got a little thorny at times. Anything in particular where – because you're, you're obviously doing your job – and the, the issue always is, is like you want to have a functional relationship with the people you're covering. Um, they don't necessarily need to be your friends, but there needs to be access and the a, a rapport enough to at least have a really a good conversation, a civil conversation. So what was that art form like for you to well, walk that line? Well, for me, it was trying to be honest and trying to be straightforward with them. I think the one that blew up the most was when I wrote a story for ski racing at Lake Placid saying the U.S. team doesn't seem to have their heart in it. They seem more interested in going to a party afterwards than the actual competitions because they really did not perform well. And uh, that caused a lot of angst. Bill Koch wouldn't talk to me for a long time. And uh, there was a lot of anger. Johnny referred to that in the interview. Yeah, John Caldwell. Yeah. Yep that there was a lot of anger about that. And I didn't mean to be mean-spirited. I was just trying to be repertorial and probably got a little too personal, but that was the way it was. I guess a couple of athletes had mentioned recently, like, well, I I don't even read Faster Scooter anymore due to, and maybe it's due to the coverage, I don't think so, but due to the fact that it's easy to comment now. You know, we get people that, like, within, you know, you post the story... And you kind of cringe. You're like, okay, when's the first commenter going to either harsh on myself or disagree with something an athlete says or say something about the wax? Uh, today you open yourself up. I mean, I, I would not like to cover competition today because I think you open yourself up. No matter what you write, you're going to get some criticism and you get, yes, some bravos, good job. But by and large, your scrutiny is pretty intense. So those who write about it or, or uh, write opinion pieces, yeah, it's a tough go. What would you, if you were in the role of media consultant or media manager for, say, the U.S. ski team or FIS, what, were some of the, what would be some of the things, you know, reflecting on your own career and then how sort of the modern enterprise operates today? How would you coach them in dealing with media? I, that's a tough one. I, I would say you've just got to be available open and uh, take your lumps and that's really the main things for me is being accessible and trying to work with the media not make friends with them but make establish a rapport and if you do well uh to accept it gracefully if you do badly accept it gracefully and move on 
what was it like, you know, if you were covering those events uh, and you weren't actually at an event and you were, I don't know what type of real-time coverage there may have been, but how would you, I mean, was that even possible to cover a ski event from a distance? Oh, I don't think so. I think you've got to be there. I was there at the finish of the Wasburg-Bieto fantastic 15, the historic 15K at Placid, and I still get chills thinking about that finish. So you have to be there. I mean, that cap, that was such an incredible moment. Can you describe for people who aren't familiar with that? Like what? What well, was the closest race in history? And the way it unfolded is that Miedo came in and he had the best time. And he, of course, he was my hero. Six foot seven, 220 pounds, you know, with a big beard, the Paul Bunyan looking guy. He was just a fabulous character and loved by the Finns. And he was, had never won a gold. So he stood there in the finish area, and then uh, I can't remember the next guy. Oh, um, a Norwegian came in, and he was about a kilometer from the finish, and he, Ava Unla, and he didn't get close to Miedo's time for about a half a kilometer, and then faded. So Miedo was still number one. And then in Wasberg was the last starter, and he was a kilometer out, and he was right on track with Miedo, and he came and he beat him by a hundredth of a second. It was still hand timing, but it prompted the move to electronic timing. But, I mean, there was tears, there was joy, it was all sorts of emotions in the short 10-minute f- period after that finish. It was, a, it was remarkable. And how would you, um, you know, if the skiers are out of sight, let's describe, I think, you, what, what was the year of that race? 1980? 1980. Okay. And, and I think you had referenced, you said it was still... A venue where they were off in the woods a bit. Oh yeah. How would you cover that, and how would you de- describe it? Well, I, one of the things I did in covering, I got I, you would start at the start finish area, watch a few people go off, then find places where I could walk to on the course. In the case of the fifty kilometer Placid, I went to the start, got out, and I famous story because I went up. There was the Finnish waxing crew and and service crew with drinks and so forth. And here comes Miedo, and he's in about 15th place, and he skis through the zone, and he says something in Finnish, and I asked one of the coaches what he said. He said, you see, his nickname is going up now. And he went up and ended up in second place. So, But I tried to find places where you could walk to, watch a little bit of the race unfold, walk back. So you time it so you get to the finish line when the really good guys, the last third of the field, are coming in. And there's no, I'm imagining you're not able to reference a replay. Nope. You're not able to. It's all in your mind. Or except in my case, I had images. I have a picture of Mieto going through the feed zone and the coaches yelling at him. And did you, uh, were you taking notes at all? Like on a little pad or just? No, on my head. I've got one of those memories. I'm known as the steel trap to my family, so. I have the steel trap memory. I remember a lot of details. I might occasionally write something down, but most of the time I was trying to take photos and just put the moments together in my head. When did you stop covering? I'm curious, like when you stopped covering that type of Nordic event? My last Nordic event was the 19, uh, well, no, 2002. Was that Salt Lake? Yep. yep. Yeah, that was my last one. And I'm even dead. And there's internet then. <laughs> I'm sure the internet was around. Well, you know, the funny thing about internet, the first time I ever used anything close to it was the 1988 Summer Games in Seoul, Korea. I was working for NBC, but I took a part-time job with USA Today 
to cover kayak and canoe and crew. And they gave us a little laptop, which we, today we call a laptop. It looked like a little keyboard. And we were able to key in our stories and send them to a data center in Seoul. And that was the first time I ever had anything like that happen. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because USA Today at the A84, I worked at 84 games with them, summer games. And uh, I'd call in the stories. I'd actually go, the race went off on time. You'd go talk slow, and they'd record it on the other end and have somebody type it in. Oh, my gosh. Okay. that's Because now, if I'm unable to watch a race live, you know, so, for example, tomorrow, I think there's a race in Lillehammer. Yeah, there's usually a season opener there. Yeah, and, and I should get my timing straight. So it either starts at 2.30 or 1.30 a.m. So, so in theory, it's supposed to air on the NBC Olympic Channel. And uh, there's been some technical difficulties on, on their side of broadcasting yeah, live. But in theory, I'll be able to get up, watch it live, take notes. I can replay it um, and you know, make my phone calls. Talk to folks, you know, over the internet. Um, but the, but I mean, I'm just trying to contrast the, with the yeah, difficulty was, of how you were doing it. Yeah, it was. Well, for example, I always refer to Placid because it was my first games, and you know, we'd go from from the event would be over. You'd run to your car if you had a vehicle close or some sort of transportation. Take the film to a film processing center. And then to go and sit in the press room and type away and get your story out and either send it, you know, be a, we didn't have fax then, but uh, telex or hand carry it to like ski racing. They say, well, we won't go to bed till three days, but hand them the story. It was, it was nerve wracking. You go to bed at midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock after looking at film or getting your story done and you wake up the next morning and go at it again. It was, it was nerve wracking. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I, I, I don't know what I do, for example, without instant log on to the fifth site and getting, you know, the nine little breakdown of result sheets that pop up. And this is even if I can't watch a live uh, a race live, I can get live timing, you know, so I at least have a sense of like placing and who's having a good race. I would be it's a huge crutch, as I yeah. assume you yeah, can Yeah, I wish imagine. I'd had that crutch, but we went, we went strictly on memory. I think every, every rider that covered skiing, cross-country skiing, ski racing, had a good memory and just got to know the athletes, and he'd hear, you'd hear stories. I remember a night going to the finish house in Lake Placid and having the athletes tell stories about the race. Oh, I passed so-and-so on that hill, and he was slipping his wax, and whatever. You could pick up tidbits, but that was by socializing. And Placid was the last Olympics. Well, Calgary had some of it, but Placid, you had access to the athletes. They, Sweden had a house, Italy had a house, Germany. And you go to those houses for parties tonight, and you get to know the athletes, have a beer with them, and talk it over. And those days are long gone, I think. So what about, I'm kind of curious, um, you know, like doping in sports been around probably as long as organized sport has been around. Yeah. Um, and the constant, you know, keep up of staying high tech, as it were, with doping protocol and conversely testing protocol. Um, what was, you know, when did that t- 
topic, you know, when did the doping come on to your radar and what was it like? Cover, you know, did you have to have to like cover that? I think that uh, the radar it came on around the early 90s, as far as I can remember. I, I was shocked because the uh, one of the people caught doping was Hari Kervisnimi of Finland, who was a terrific young man. And I uh, got to know his family and got to know him well. He married Mary Elisa Hamalainen, who was a great skier. So that was a real shock because, to me, cross-country skiers were the purest of all athletes. I still think that by and large. But then there was the case at Salt Lake, and we won't talk about that too much, but, you know, the double winner who got axed. And I was having dinner with Bjorn Dolly, not to drop names, but I'm going to do it. You're encouraged to drop names. (laughs) (laughs) But we, a group of us had dinner with Bjorn Dolly. Back in Salt Lake? At Salt Lake. And I looked over and said, well, what'd you think about the winner of the 30K today? And Bjorn looked and got a little grin. He said, I think he had some help. So you're referring to Mulig, I think? Mulig. Okay. Yeah. And uh, do do you remember watching that race? I watched that race. I called back to Sunnyside Sports here in Bend to Gary Boniker, and I was watching the race. I said, I've never seen anything like it. This guy went on the hill. It was a pack of about 12 liters, and he left them in the dust. He is skiing like a madman. I, I was there just as a spectator. As young, I was a lot younger, and I think with, with some friends, and I think, I don't know, I don't think I was married at the time, but the woman who became my wife. Anyway, there, there's a plug for her. I'm dropping names. Um, but I remember just visually watching him hammer up the hills, like frothing. Yeah. And I was like, frothing. I have, I have the, still have the photos I took. And Solomon bought the photos from me, and then they called me and said, we can't use them because of you know the, the problem. But uh, it was a beautiful sunny day. It was almost perfect wax conditions. And this guy on that one, remember that steep hill on the backside? He just walked away from it. I was blown away. So, and then I was blown away when I found out he was doping. So how long was it before you found out he was doping? Well, we got the hints at that dinner with Dolly, and then I think it was about two days after that that it all – no, it was after the 50. And uh, I had gone by that time. I covered the 15, 30, and, and then gone the relay, but I missed uh, the 50. So – you know, now, I'm just kind of curious, and I'm trying to like more paint this kind of in a black and white way, and, and I'm sure it's a far more complex than that. But, you know, we all kind of, you know, if we're sports fans, we all, and we follow in particular endurance sport, there's sort of that time when you have the innocence is gone. Yeah. And like that standout performance, um, you know, say prior to you watching Mulek, I'm just trying, I guess that'll, be my question but like do you recall a time when you saw a performance that was just otherworldly but the the idea or concept of it being a dope performance was just like never entered your brain never entered your mind well it didn't with middle guy i just thought this guy's a superb athlete but he had kind of a checkered past which i had not checked into you know racing for spain and been kicked off the german team had a fight with it all that stuff had gone on and i was not aware of it I just thought, well, he's a well-traveled athlete. Oh, here they come. Yeah, I have to say, like, I, I try not to be a cynic. You know, when I see something and um, you know, I'm like, nope, you know, there's unless there's, like, real obvious evidence, you know, it's just a standout performance. 
But that said, I was sick for a while this fall and I ended up like at night I couldn't sleep and I went back and I watched a bunch of old Yohog uh, races. Mm -hmm. You know, this is long before she was ever associated with any doping. Um, And now with that lens, you know, knowing what I know now, but also knowing that on occasion there are do uh, performances. But that said, watching those in retrospect, I'm like, oh, no way. It almost was like the mule situation. I'm like, she's just skiing away, gone. Yeah. You know, so... It's, it's depressing. It, it really is. Because I still have such high regard for the training that goes into it, the mental attitude, the preparation, and to have that be integral part of it, it's just it's so discouraging. Did you... Um, are you able to, in particular, like after Mulig, obviously, you know, Becky Scott, who is a... Well, I think it's a shame what happened to Becky. Yeah, and it's same games. I mean, it, to Becky's a wonderful person, lived here for a while. And uh, I just think it was a tragedy. And there's a film out that ESPN did. Did you see that? Their 30 for 30 series about people that got their medals by no. default. Oh, really? And one of them is Becky, and they asked her where her medal was, her gold medal, and just in a drawer with a bunch of stationary items. It's, she was really, you know, like all three of the athletes from three different sports they interviewed were so depressed about the way it happened. They didn't get their moment of, of glory, which they, they justly deserve. Right. Um, so, what? like, you've seen a lot of endurance sport. And, like, what would you say to... Um, well, people covering endurance sport now, guys like me or, you know, anybody else covering like endurance running, swimming, skiing, whatever, like to navigate a world where there's still a little bit of uncertainty. I would be cautious. That's the one thing I would say. You have to be cautious. You have to approach everything and take it with a grain of salt. Don't get too carried away because, you know, the the – other shoe may drop. You do your story and suddenly you find out something. So you have to be so cautious these days. Whereas I think when I covered it, you know, the athletes were straight up. You know, there were people who worked in the woods, the men and the women were. Look, I remember one of, one of the Finnish girls had, what, uh, Helene, Helena Takalo. She had three kids. I mean, they were regular folks. And it just never entered my mind. There wasn't a big money in the sport. It was one of the, the the purest sport as far as I was concerned. Do you think it really was pure? I mean, do we think like... I think in the old days it was. I think it changed with the Muliga. That era, you know, the 90s, it changed. Yeah. Became like cycling. Because the doping and cycling has been going on, you know, I mean... Forever. What, strychnine? I mean, I think they used to take strychnine. Well, we were talking last night with the, at a group where you get together every Thursday, and one of the one of the... Members of this group are, you know, informal members. Uh, rode in European cycling races for years. Was on some good teams. And he said, my gosh, it's been in the sport since I was in it. And that's 30 years ago in his case. And we were talking about Tommy Simpson, the great British guy, whose heart burst in the past because mm-hmm. he's loaded up with amphetamines. I mean, come on. It's just uh, there's too much at stake. I, I'm personally, if I had the chance to – get one move up one or two places or just stay where I was I'd stay where I was just for the sheer think of what's happening to your body by ingesting all those drugs and something's got it there's got to be 
for every action, there's a reaction. So, what would you say to you know athletes um, who are who are potentially going to emerge onto the international scene um, in the next five years about how to navigate pressures like that? Get a good group of people around you, good solid people who can guide you in the right direction to tell you not to get tempted to take something so you can go a little bit faster, but just to stay the course, try to get better on your own, do what you can, but you need a support team these days. Tell me what it was like dealing with sort of U.S. ski team, Canadian national team uh, back in the day, and I'm trying. I'm so horrible with names, and I should know this because... Well, the U.S. ski team was... It depended on who was there. Um, when John Bauer was there, it was pretty much open door. <clears throat> Marty was tough to deal with at times. Canada was always much and way we're talking easier. like Marty Hall. Marty Hall, yeah. Marty was tough to deal with. He, uh, the Canadians were always open. Even when Marty went up there, he tried to kind of close them down, but they still, by and large, were m- much easier to deal with. And do you, is that like, how did that manifest? Is that just because I, I... Access to the skiers gotcha. and saying, hey, could I get an interview with, for example, Pierre Harvey? Oh, no problem. And Pierre was great. So we became friends. One of the, the nice things about that was there were some of those athletes that I became good friends with, like Pierre. We did a lot of stuff together. I stay in touch with him, not as regularly as I used to, but a really wonderful person and very accessible and always gave a good interview. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, his kid's like that. I really, his, oh, yeah. He, terrific kid. Yeah, nice guy and um, gives, you the, gives you the time. To sort of flesh out, like, a good, you know, the story. Well, you know, Pierre was a hell of a, his dad was a great cyclist, too. And in 84, he was in the Olympics at L.A. And we were, <laughs> we were at a thing where we did some work with Solomon. We did some, we went back east, Pierre and I, we taught people about a roller ski. And we did a big Solomon thing. And then we did one in Coronado, San Diego. And Pierre and I, he'd, he'd go bike riding with me and he'd, just stay with me, would never drop me. So I always respected him for being nice to me. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny because I'm just thinking of like Marty, for example. Um, I do like how Marty is really, he's outspoken. Well, that's the best thing about Marty. He really, his uh, hall, skid marks, as we called it, his hall marks that started in ski racing and then later went into the uh, Canadian Ski Magazine. He he was he's great for, for saying what he believes in. He's not always right, which none of them are, but it's good for bringing up the subjects and being uh, forthright on them. Yeah, and I think there there's other skiers that, um, like Chris Freeman comes to mind, who he has obviously been in the high-level ski game for a long, long time. Oh, yeah. And it's nice, you know, he speaks his mind, whether or not anybody agrees with him or, you know, the current crop of U.S. ski team folks agree with him. He... Um, he at least raises some issues that are good uh, topics for discussion, you know, things that need to be kind of fleshed out. What are some questions that you would want to ask guys like Alex Harvey or Keegan Randall? Or Well, I, you know, I'd like to – one of the concerns I have is with the classic event. And I'd like to find out what their feelings are, their inner feelings. Should you, you know, double pull your way around a classic course or 
what kind of restrictions would they believe would be necessary to, to bring it such a pure art form? I'd like to see it restored. What do you think? I don't know. That's, that's such a thorny question. There's um, no easy answer, except they might have to go to the zones like they did with skating when it first came in. They had skate zones, and then you had to go back to classic, and then you could skate. So maybe double pole zones, or maybe changing the courses entirely. Are you able to ski at all anymore? Yeah, I, I, I gave up a year last year because I, I had to get a new knee. I was ground down after years of running and skiing and whatever. So, yeah, I'm going to ski this year. Oh, yeah. Where do you usually just ski? You know what I do? I do the famous dog skis. I wait. I have all sorts of back forest roads. Yeah, yeah. I go to Meisner once in a while, but a lot of time I'm on forest roads with the dogs. You ever go to Winoga? Oh, yeah. I haven't. Yeah. So it's more of that, dog skiing. And for this interview, it should be slow skier. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're all relative, right? We're all kind of slow. Um, okay. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening to the Bob Woodward interview.